Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for the mercy of hearing you speak to us in your word. We pray for understanding, uh, but most of all we pray for grace to put what we hear into practice so that we can live the lives of your children and persevere. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the Christian race, this life of persevering faith in Jesus, is for many quite a marathon. And in a marathon, you expect to get more tired as you go on. You expect to get sore, for there to be more wear and tear, for any weaknesses to be magnified, any niggles to grow into full-blown injuries. But what if there was a way of running that actually allows you to get stronger, fitter as you went on? What if there was a route that healed what was injured, restored what was put out, that made reaching your goal more certain the longer you continued? Today the author of Hebrews will tell us that there is a way of running this race of faith, that there is a path to follow that will allow the believer in Jesus to get stronger and more whole the longer they pursue it, that will actually make your finishing the race sure. It's the straight path where you choose each day what your Father has chosen for you. So if you want to finish and who starts a race not intending to finish, Oh, and if you want to help your brothers and sisters make it to the end and not get sidetracked into dead ends, let's listen and to and put into practice what God teaches his people here in Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. Our author actually starts with rich encouragement. Therefore, he says, therefore, referring back to what he's just written in verses 1 to 11, because you have Jesus who has run the race before you, Jesus, who through his death has made you wholly fit for God's presence, Jesus who always lives and is always able to help us, and because in trusting Jesus you've been adopted as God's sons, the sons whom he loves, and know that in all things he's instructing and training you so that you'll share in his holiness, his life, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, this is more than, you know, a pat on the shoulder and saying, you know, just try a little harder. The author's actually applying to believers the exhortation the prophet Isaiah gives in Isaiah 35 to those who know God will come to save, who know that they have been placed by God's action on the highway to salvation. He applies it to believers, strengthen weak hands and make firm the feeble knees because in confessing Jesus, believers know that God has come to save and that by God's action they have been put on the pathway to salvation. And in applying Isaiah's words to believers, he's saying that this race of faith is the way that will bring you to Zion, the heavenly city, to live in the presence of God at peace with him forever. And he's saying that even though the race might be hard now, it is the way to everlasting joy. 
The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now think about that for a moment. No matter what your grief now, whether it's sorrow for hopes unrealised, for that relationship or that child you never had, for losses that came too early, for the frustration of being tripped up in sin or grief of seeing those you love damaged by sin, their own folly or that of others or even your own. Or even if you're experiencing the grief of enduring God's discipline, no matter what your grief now, ransomed by the death of Jesus, this race of faith is the way that you will come to gladness and joy that you will actually come to a time when sorrow and all regret will flee away, be no more. So he says, don't be weary or give up. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And because you're a son, because God has addressed you as my son, the path you are to give yourself to travel is this level path that heals, the path of sons. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now he's continuing the, the picture to picture the Christian life as a race and when you're running the rough path that's uneven and full of jagged stones that bruises and twists the joints and aggravates injuries. By contrast the level and smooth path, the straight path well, that's the path that allows you to get stronger as you go along. There's no aggravation, just strengthening as your muscles tone and you get used to that steady, even pace. But talk of a level and straight path also comes, as you've heard, from Proverbs 4, where the father is exhorting the son to choose the wise path, the path of the fear of the Lord, the path you give yourself where you give yourself to wisdom and what is right and reject the path of the wicked. You see, that path is the one on which you can travel freely. When you walk, your step will not be hampered and if you run, you will not stumble. That path is the safe path. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. You can see where you're going. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And that path, the level path, is the path that will bring you to your goal. And all your ways will be sure. The straight path, the healing path for a believer, is Proverbs 4 tells us, where you give yourself to what God wills for you, walking in the fear of the Lord, choosing what's right. This healing path is the path of sons who listen to their father's instruction, who choose the way their father has chosen for them. And so to keep running well in the Christian life, you actually need to give yourself to what God teaches you is his way, his will for his people. But what in particular here does our author highlight as the holy God's will for his sons, the way of life he has chosen for those who trust in Jesus. 
Strive, he says, for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A life of peace and holiness is the straight, the healing path. And we should strive, it says, for peace and holiness. And strive has the sense of pursue, chasing after peace and holiness with the same kind of determination a hunter pursues his quarry. And so trusting Jesus isn't a matter of ticking a box and thinking, well, now I've got eternity sorted and I can just get on with pursuing, well, my own interests. No. Believers are to long for what God wills for us, to chase after it. Seeking peace and holiness is to direct each day of our race of faith. And there should never be a day when we deviate from their pursuit. But what's the author thinking of when he speaks of peace and holiness? What's the content of these ideas? Is peace just avoiding conflict with others? Is holiness, well, what is holiness? A sanctimonious air? A kind of otherworldliness? What's peace and holiness? Well, to understand peace and holiness, we need to go to the Old Testament because what's been true of the whole book of Hebrews is especially true of verses 12 to 17. Each verse only yields its sense when we turn to the Old Testament. So let's think about peace. Now, the absence of conflict is good. It helps us in the race because there are a few things as tiring as conflict. But peace is, a, is bigger than the absence of conflict. Uh, the author here is thinking of Old Testament peace, which is summed up in that word that uh, the Hebrews use, shalom. This is the peace that is a well-being that comes from the God of peace. It is well-being in the wider sense that embraces ideas of rest, safety, freedom from care and fear, trustful relationships. There is wholeness and contentment in this peace that the God of peace gives his people. And this is a peace believers have already come to experience in believing the gospel. Remember what Paul says, justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. So peace starts now and will be fully and finally realised in the new creation. It is as those who know peace with the God of peace that our God now commands us to seek peace with everyone. This is a command, when you understand what peace means, it's actually telling us to look out for, to seek the well-being and prosperity of your neighbours in all your dealings. Seeking peace, yes, it should start particularly with seeking the well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are to seek their good and good relationships with them and if conflict arises and conflict in the Christian community can be so discouraging and energy sapping and if conflict arises, we're to seek peace by seeking reconciliation. You see, to seek peace is actually a call to put on the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, to have that mindset that Paul says is Christ's mindset in Philippians, the mindset that he showed in humbling himself to come to the earth to die for us so that he could pursue our good. It's the mindset that does nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counts others better than ourselves. 
We are to pursue peace by being Christ-like in the Christian community. But of course, seeking peace is not limited to the Christian community. It says we're to pursue, strive for peace with everyone. So in our actions, in our interactions with the wider community, we are to pursue their well-being in all things, never their harm or loss. And that will especially mean bringing them to know peace with God, being those who make peace through the gospel. You see, to seek peace means that each of us will live a life that commends the gospel by its genuine love of neighbour. Oh, and then being bold enough and caring enough to speak the gospel to them and to seek out and create opportunities for them to hear the gospel. The path we are to tread of pursuing peace is the all-embracing task of loving our neighbours. Now, I've just said that this is actually the healing, the restoring path, but sometimes when we think about loving our neighbours, it can just seem so demanding and tiring. But your God, who can be trusted, says that this is the right path, the healing path to persevere on. And as well as peace, we are to pursue holiness. The holiness must we must have if we are to see the holy God, if we are to be God's people living in God's presence. Now, like peace, holiness, as we've seen already in Hebrews, is the gift of God to us in Christ. We are sanctified, that is, made holy by Jesus' offering of himself on the cross. But just as we are given holiness, so we have to express uh, what we are, God's holy people in our daily lives. Just as in the Old Testament, you see, God wants his people to be like himself. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. But what does being holy look like? Now, holiness is often misrepresented, but to give you a picture of the holy life, let's look at Leviticus 19, where God tells his people they have to be holy. I'll read you some and some's on the screen. This is what God commands. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Isn't that good? Holiness creates trust in a community. Oh, you shall not oppress your neighbour or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You, you won't curse the deaf. Holiness means you won't exploit or oppress your vulnerable neighbour. You'll do no injustice in court. Uh, you won't slander. You'll care for their reputation. Oh, yes, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour. You shall not take vengeance. Oh, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. That is holiness. As God's holiness embodies his character, his justice and righteousness and mercy and love, so God expects his people's relationships to be characterised by justice and righteousness, mercy and love. And holiness is good for people and communities. God, the holy God of peace, wants his people, his sons, to be like himself, 
peacemakers and holy. That's the path he wants you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to pursue. And you will do better in your Christian life where you give yourself to it, where you embrace what God wills for you. This is the straight path that will make your running smoother and stronger year after year. Sin, by contrast, makes us stumble, injures us. We know that. Anger isolates us. Cold pride embitters us. Giving into lust shames us. Covetousness and envy mislead us. All sin creates problems, causes hurt, complicates our lives, confuses us and robs us of confidence as followers of Jesus. The straight way, the healing way, is to put away sin and zealously pursue what God wills for you. Peace and holiness, love of God and love of neighbour in all things. So, so we have to stop being people who say, oh, what can I get away with? How far can I go without doing the wrong thing? How close can I stand to the fire and not get burnt? No, we actually have to become people who say of everything we do, does this please Jesus? Will this delight my holy heavenly Father. So as you hear that this is the way of healing, the, the way that will sustain you to the end, ask yourself, how have you pursued peace and holiness this week past? Have you made seeking the well-being of others, made living the life that does God's goodwill your goal? Have you allowed that pursuit of peace and holiness to direct your decisions? about what you say or what you look at or how you spend your time or how you treat others. Oh, and as you reflect on that, ask yourself this other question. How will you pursue peace and holiness in the week to come? Will you say, and these are just illustrations, make it a goal not to speak in anger or to not visit those adult websites? Will you make it a goal to share Jesus? Will you give up some time to think about how you can do good to others? Or even better, will you spend some time doing good to others? You know, having that friend who's alone around for a meal, or minding that other person's child to give that stressed parent a break. Oh, why not if you can't join the ministry, come in and, and clean after some of our ministries like explorers or mainly music, they'd appreciate that. Now these are just illustrative suggestions. You have to do the work. God's word says you should pursue peace and holiness. That's the healing path for you. You have to work out what that looks like, knowing what peace and holiness is in your life. But to run well, Choose the level path, the way of peace and holiness. Oh, and yes, let's help each other avoid those dead ends that will stop us from ever finishing. Presumptuous idolatry, enslaving sexual immorality, contemptuous indifference. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it the many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. See to it. There's a collective responsibility. Part of our seeking peace. Part of our love for others is helping them to run with endurance and making sure we keep out of our common life those things that will stop our brothers and sisters from coming to the finish line. What God in his grace has promised us. And so firstly he says make sure that there's no root of bitterness because that has an effect on the whole. It defiles, it makes unholy and unclean, it taints the whole by spreading through our common life. But what is the root of bitterness? Is our author speaking of unresolved conflict? Because let's face it, that's pretty poisonous. Now, our author is speaking of something else. The root of bitterness is a phrase taken from Deuteronomy 29. There, verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses is renewing the covenant between the people and their God as they enter the land of promise. The root of bitterness is a person who, (coughs) verse 19, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The root of bitterness is a person who gives outward assent to the covenant, but in their heart knowingly, have determined to be loyal, not to the God of the covenant, no. They're determined to follow their own path and give their loyalty to another God doing what pleases them, worshipping what pleases them. Even though the covenant calls for an exclusive commitment to the Lord God their Saviour. Now for the first hearers of the book of Hebrews, such a person, a root of bitterness would be one who Here's the warnings of Hebrews. You know, those serious warnings about spurning God's grace, about crucifying the Son of God all over again, and then says, I'll be okay going back to Judaism. I can still belong to this community without needing to depend on Jesus alone. Now, to say that is a presumptuous hypocrisy. It's presumptuous because it has more confidence in themselves than in the word of the living God. It says they can keep themselves safe no matter what God has declared he will do. And it's hypocrisy because it's play acting. Play acting to continue to receive the benefits of being in the community while working against the prosperity and safety of the community, seeking to deny its basic identity, faith in Jesus. Now notice that this warning against a root of bitterness is actually given to those tempted to return to Judaism. If you ever doubted how necessary faith in Jesus as the Son of God is to honouring the true and living God, to experiencing his salvation, in this warning there is proof of the absolute necessity of confessing Jesus as the Son of God, of receiving what Jesus has said as what God says. 
See, think about it. He is warning those going back to Judaism, that is, to God-instituted priesthood and sacrifice and rituals, to obedience to all the requirements of a God-given law. He's warning them that in doing that, in rejecting Jesus, they are idolaters. And that's right. Because if God says of Jesus... This is my son whom I've exalted to be Lord over all. And you say, I don't need to accept that. I'm happy to keep worshipping you, God, in the way I always always have, as if Jesus hasn't come or as if Jesus was wrong. Well, all of a sudden you are worshipping a different God than the true God. A God without a beloved and unique eternal son whom he raised from the dead. And in worshipping a different God, you are an idolater. Someone who prefers the God you imagine to God as he has revealed himself to be Father, Son and Spirit. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you need to hear that. There is no other way to be right with God, to honour God, to be safe for eternity that can confess Jesus as Son of God. Oh, and there's a warning here to us too. Here's a warning to all those who want to play the game of belonging to the Christian community, yet really have their hope in someone other than Jesus, giving their loyalty to another. Oh, that's not someone who who sits amongst us and and knows they don't yet believe. In a sense, they're in an an honest position. They, They know And maybe they know they need to change. No, no, this is somebody who wants us all to think that they're a good, dinky-die Christian, yet really have their hope in someone other than Jesus, giving their loyalty to another. Well, if you think you can be involved with and belong to God's people on your own terms, on some other basis than confessing Jesus as Lord, so that You don't need to listen when he calls you to seek peace with all, to forgive, to pursue holiness, to meet with his people. If that's what you're thinking, God is warning you here that he knows your heart and he will judge you. And actually God is telling all of us that we must not tolerate that kind of presumptuous hypocrisy for it will certainly defile our common life, infect it and make it unacceptable to God. And just as we have to make sure that there's no presumptuous hypocrisy, so we have to prevent people losing their way through sexual immorality. No one, he says, is to be sexually immoral. Now, sexual immorality and idolatry are always closely associated. They are in the Old Testament. Say, for example, Numbers 25, where on Balaam's advice, the Midianite women seduced the Israelite men to lead them away from the Lord. And and that connection is true in the time of the first churches, as you can see in Revelation 2. And the connection's all true today. You see, God has said that the sexual union he has created to enrich our life is only to be practised in the permanent, exclusive union of a man and a woman in marriage. If you want to find sexual expression in some other context, casual liaisons outside marriage, visiting prostitutes or in sexual activity with someone of your own sex. And if you want to feel good about that sexual expression, want it endorsed and celebrated, then you will have to get another God, 
than the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. You'll have to get another God because you're making plain by your persistence in that sexual immorality that you do not trust the God of Jesus to command what is best for you, that you don't believe his promises to keep and provide for you. We have to help each other not to be seduced into sexual immorality because once it gets a hold on people, it is a powerful hold. And so we should be truth-tellers to each other. You know the truth we should be saying to each other. Life is not about having a great sexual experience. You are not your sexuality. Fulfilment is not having a perfect marriage. You do not lose if, like your Lord, you die a virgin. No, no. Life's actually about knowing the true God in knowing his son Jesus trusting him, knowing his love now and having a hope of eternal life through persevering in faith in him. And just as we mustn't be sexually immoral, so we must not be unholy like Esau, whose soul that says his birthright for a single meal. Now the sense of the word translated unholy is kind of worthless, empty. Esau was an empty person when it came to the things of God. He was totally worldly, profane, preoccupied just with the things of this world. And the evidence of this, says our author, is the way he treated his birthright. Now the author is referring to the account in Genesis 25. Esau was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, and he was the twin brother of Jacob. But Esau was the eldest son. And as such, he had a right to inherit above his brother. And as the grandson of Abraham, his inheritance was not primarily lands or flocks or silver or gold. It was relationship with God, inheriting the blessing of God in the covenant God had made with Abraham and his descendants, where God had committed himself, promised to be their God and to give them the land of Canaan and to bring blessing to the world through them. Esau's birthright was to be the bearer of this covenant, to be the chief inheritor of the promise. But it's recorded in Genesis that one day Esau came in from hunting in the fields and he was exhausted and famished. And he said to his brother, who was conveniently cooking at the time, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted, famished. And Jacob, who actually knew how to get the measure of another person, said... Sell me your birthright now. Hethor said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob delivered, gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went away his immediate needs satisfied. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau thought so little of the promise of God that he readily traded the unseen for the seen, a stew, traded the promise which had eternal blessing for the immediate satisfaction of his felt need of his hunger. The promises to God of God to him were just mere words, valueless, with no value or power to enrich or bless him. <laughs> They were so much less valuable 
than the tangible benefit of the stew he could enjoy in the here and now, of having his desire satisfied now. And God says we must not be like him. We mustn't trade away the promises of God, our belonging to the people of God, our inclusion in the new covenant for the immediate and tangible, for the satisfaction of our worldly desires, whether that desire is our ambition to be well thought of by our academic or work peers or to belong to that group of friends or whether it's our hunger for the good life of the glossy magazines or for sexual satisfaction. We must not think so little of God's promises and belonging to Jesus that we trade them for these passing, fleeting, perishing, this worldly achievements and pleasures. We mustn't be like Esau for such contemptuous worldliness has consequences as our author points out, pointing us to Genesis 27. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now to get the sense of what's going on in Genesis 27, the author's point, we actually need to look at some other translations. Now the NASB is the more literal. The NIV is better because it emphasises the finality of what Jesus done, Esau has done and the ASV brings out the sense of what's going on in Genesis 27. For you know that even when he afterward desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no place for a change of mind in his father though he sought it diligently with tears. You see, in Genesis 27, uh, Jacob has come earlier and he has deceitfully obtained the blessing of the oldest son. And then Esau comes in after Jacob and recognising what has happened, he seeks a blessing from Isaac. Yet Isaac says of Jacob, yes, he shall be blessed. There was no change to Isaac's blessing. And then the tears and the misery starts. But there's no evidence of any repentance or desire for repentance on Esau's part. And the word translated repentance does have its basic sense of change of mind. You see, the person whose mind he could not change is Isaac's, who was firm that Jacob would be the one who retained the blessing of the covenant. The point that is being made from this reference to Genesis 27 is that Esau missed out forever. Once despised, there was no opportunity to recover covenant blessing, no opportunity for inclusion in what he had once so thoughtlessly traded away. The warning that we receive from Esau is that of finality. You abandon faith in Jesus and there is no other source of blessing no other way of obtaining God's favour and that is a warning we need to hear for ours is an age that has no value for what's not seen that wants all satisfaction here and now that considers any denial of our appetites an offence against our person and just foolishness because it thinks this life is all there is ours is an age that makes it easy to discount the value of the promise and to become empty, worthless, profane people 
like Esau, who trade a promise of eternal life for a momentary passing satisfaction. Presumptuous idolatry, immorality, contemptuous worldliness, these are all dead ends. And scripture says we must help each other avoid these things. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Part of our love of others, part of pursuing their peace, is helping them run with endurance in the right path. So let me ask you, how have you helped turn a brother or sister away from these kinds of dead ends? Is it by being an example in your own choices of the value of the promise? Can they see in you what you have given up for following Jesus? Is it by making the effort to develop the real relationships where you actually know what's going on in their lives so you can listen and correct, warn and rebuke? And it does take effort. Two hours on a Sunday won't do that. Or is it simply by encouraging their involvement, say, to stay in a growth group and keep hearing God's word? The dangers are real. We have to look out for each other. There's a lot at stake, isn't there, in finishing the Christian race. It's life. Life, joy forever. The end of sorrow. Life in the presence of the living God. Hebrews 12 is given to help you run with endurance. So hear what it says. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember that God is treating you in all things as his son and heed his call to choose the straight way which heals those who travel on it. So give yourself to pursuing peace with all and the holiness that is God's will for you and give and accept the encouragement and admonition that will keep us from pursuing those dead ends. Be determined to run every day the race of faith and so come to share in the life of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, to be hearers who do. Give us such a trust in you that we think that doing your will is the way that will heal, bring us wholeness and bring us to what you have promised. And so we pray, Father, help us to be people who seek peace and pursue holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.